Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, January 18th. Today, according to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, is an important day for our country. It's the last day the United States government has the money to meet its debts. She cited tomorrow, Thursday, as the day the government would run out of money to fully repay people who hold government bonds and other U.S. debt. That is a big deal. The safest investment in the world is considered to be U.S. Treasury obligations, right? Now, this happens periodically, so Congress raises what's called the debt ceiling so the government can pay back the money that it has already borrowed. And you've probably heard that the new Republican Congress wants to tie raising the debt ceiling to certain spending cuts so the debt doesn't just keep going up or going up as fast. Democrats say playing politics with the creditworthiness of the United States government is to court economic disaster for everyone's 401ks and everything else. Uh, President Biden says no negotiations on this. So you can be excused for being confused. What actually happens tomorrow, according to Janet Yellen, that she cited Thursday, January 19th. What does she mean by the term extraordinary measures that can put off the reckoning by a few months? She says around June, although that's depending on a few things. What is responsible borrowing and spending and taxation to pay for it? And isn't politics how that gets decided? With me now to explain the money and politics of the debt ceiling and why Treasury Secretary Yellen put a big mark on the calendar for tomorrow is John Cassidy, New Yorker Magazine staff writer since 1995, who has seen a few debt ceiling political battles and fiscal cliffs come and go, so far without a national default, and is author of two books, How Markets Fail, The Logic of Economic Calamities, and Dot Con, How America Lost Its Mind and Money in the Internet Era. John, always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks, Brian. Delighted to be here. Can you just define the debt ceiling first? What does the term actually refer to? It refers to a piece of legislation that was first passed in 1917, actually, more than 100 years ago. Ironically, Congress passed it to make um, issuing the government issuing debt easier because in those days, Congress had to approve every individual debt issue or, or close to that. So to make things easier, they consolidated into one bill which would set a limit for how much debt the uh, federal government could, you know, could introduce. But it wasn't meant at that stage to sort of be a strict cap. It was supposed to make things earlier, easier rather, sorry. So over the decades, though, it's what it's turned into really, especially in more recent decades, is just a sort of political weapon for the um, Republicans to use when, when they're out of office to try and make things difficult for the administration and to try and put a limit on spending and debt to issuance. So it's a piece of legislation, basically. So when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen named tomorrow, 
which is also my father's birthday. Happy birthday, Dad. It's just not as big a national deal as what Janet Yellen has done. Sorry, Dad. Uh, When Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen named tomorrow as the day the government would hit the debt ceiling, what does that mean? Well, congratulations to your father. What it means is that um, the actual numbers are going to run up against the debt. The, the, The Treasury issues debt on an ongoing basis. If you look on the Treasury website, you'll see debt auctions taking place all the time. The national debt is now very large. It's about 31 point, get over $30 trillion. The debt limit is $31.7 trillion. And technically, we're going to reach that tomorrow, Yellen said. I don't know if it will be exact, but it'll, it'll be close. Now, that doesn't mean that we're breaching the debt ceiling because your next question will be, what, what does it mean by extraordinary measures she talked about? Wait, Treasury, you, read my, you read my script. <laughs> because the Treasury, because there's, there's so much money coming in and going out, it's a huge operation. The uh, Treasury can manage things so we don't actually go breach the debt ceiling for another maybe five or six months. And these extraordinary measures that they're going to use are, are things like no longer making investments in government pension funds. There's two or three huge government pension funds, federal employees pension funds, the postal service pension funds. They have a lot of contributions coming in, of course, just from people earning, making their earnings. Instead of being invested straight away, Treasury will take that money, use it to pay for the rest of the government, and then they promise to make up the uh, the difference after the debt ceiling crisis is, is resolved. So they're basically accounting dodges and sort of money movements they can use for the next few months to keep Uncle Sam basically from, uh, you know, from maxing out. Gee, regular Americans wish we could invoke some magic, extraordinary measures for our own debts, uh, but I guess we don't have that luxury. So let's talk more about these actual numbers. You just cited one of them, the current debt ceiling at $31.4 trillion. That's kind of a lot of money. Plus, it's such a big number that people have no idea what it really means. And Yellen says the ceiling has to be higher than that to pay everything the government owes. The government currently owes people more than $31 trillion. Well, it needs qualifying a bit. These things are always complicated. The $31.4 trillion figure refers to the, uh, all the, what's called the gross debt, all the debt that's issued by the federal government. Some of that is actually owned by other branches of the federal government, like the Social Security Trust Fund. So if you net that out, the figure is lower and is now about 100% of a a GDP equivalent. Um, So it is a very large number and it's gone up a lot in the recent years, largely because of all the spending by both the Republican administration and the Democratic administration during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, went up $7 trillion under, under the Trump administration. It's gone up by more than that, I think, under, under Biden. Or I'd have, I'd have to double-check that. Don't, don't cite me on that one. Mm-hmm. But it's gone up a lot in the, last, in the last few years, and it's a large number. But it's also pretty much in line with a lot of other developed nations now who are pretty much approaching 100% of our GDP. So and it is and what who, it is. That's who does it is. the government owe that money to, more specifically? I always hear... China is a giant creditor. Well, China is a big creditor, but one of the biggest creditors are domestic, uh, other Americans, American pension funds. If you've got a 401k, 
most likely some of that is invested in U.S. Treasury bonds. U.S. Treasury bonds, despite these crises we go through every few years, still regard as the safest financial asset in the world. And um, almost every pension fund in the country, every insurance company in the country will have some and quite a lot of its uh, assets invested in, in, in U.S. Treasury bonds. So they're, they're the biggest buyers university pension funds all these big investing institutions then there are a lot of foreign buyers uh, foreign institutions foreign investment funds and foreign governments including the chinese which uh, are a big buyer, buyer although they've actually cut down a bit in, in the last few years and i hear two different narratives kind of competing narratives about our relationship to china because they owe a lot of u.s government debt one is that china has a lot of power over us because it owes so much of our debt, so owns so much of our debt. So if it decided to default, it could bankrupt the U.S. government and that would cause disaster in this country. So we have to do more of what China wants us to do. The other narrative is we have China more over a barrel because if the U.S. ever to, were to default on its debts, well, China's dependent on that money continuing to come in to it. And China's got its own economic problems now. So is it one or the other? Well, it's both of them up to a point. I mean, the Chinese the Chinese debt, I think, is about 900 billion they own or something something thereabouts, which given that the whole debt is about um, 30 billion, you know, you're talking Trillion. about maybe 3% of the debt, 3 or 4% is owned by the Chinese. So if the Chinese were to no, sell it's not, all It's their, not as much as a lot of listeners probably thought. Right? Not at when, all. when they no, say, oh, China owns so much of our debt, it's 3%, 4%, no, you're no, saying, of the debt. Yet. So, you know, if the Chinese sold it all tomorrow, there'd be a big crash in U.S. debt prices for a day or two. But other people would step up. You know, it's not as if we're wholly dependent on the Chinese to keep the government functioning. That's just not correct. And as you say, on the other side of the equation, because it is a large sum of money, the Chinese would be hit badly by any default or any, um, you know, which would... If the if U.S. debts go into default, their value on the markets will will, will collapse. So it's a two it's a two sided thing, and China is a big creditor of the U.S. But you know, it's as they say, it's by no means the only creditor. The biggest creditors are our, our domestic investors. Janet in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC with John Cassidy, who covers the intersection of economics and politics for the New Yorker. Hi, Janet. Good morning. Um, I think. Um, the money was borrowed in order to help us through COVID. It wasn't like I went into debt and used my credit to buy a flat screen TV. And I also feel that... Well, well I, some of it, people, some of it, right? Some of it was bar borrowed to get us through this emergency. Go back 10 years, they'd say, oh, well, we borrowed a lot of money at the beginning of the financial crisis to get America through that great recession without more calamity. And then you can say, oh, after 9-11, we had to borrow a lot of money to get the country through. You know what I mean? So, so people have their things that keep happening. Yes, it does happen, and it helps me now because if I if the money maybe is not borrowed, then I'm going to be homeless today, and my children may not have a future. So I feel I trust, I hope that the government is borrowing it so that they prevent a calamity today, so that we can have a future tomorrow. Janet, thank you, th thank you so much. And Janet raises an essential tension here: borrowing so we can have a decent present uh, present today versus whatever risks to our children, because that's what the deficit hawks always say, right? We're placing this burden on our children. 
whether that's true or not as some global threat. John? Yeah. Yes, I mean, there's always two-sided, obviously. And as I said, I mean, she's right that a lot of it um, went... I was just looking while we were talking. Um, and, you know, the federal debt back in 2016 was uh, 19 trillion and it's gone up to um as you said 30 point something oh, so, so. since then so nearly half of it has been um has been wow. brought on in, in in the last six years and that that is a, a combination of basically republican tax cuts under um uh, under trump, trump famous track put package then covid and then uh, biden's big spending bills uh, as well so, you know, there, there's been a lot of factors, yeah. but COVID, I think, has is, is, is been the largest in the last few years, undoubtedly. And the one that I left out for my list of big things that caused the country to borrow more was what you just mentioned, the Trump tax cuts. So we borrowed money to give Americans tax cuts today. Correct. I mean, that's the, that, the really annoying, one of the really many annoying things, but one of the annoying things about the whole debt limit um, deficit discussion is the Republicans are very clever at focusing the, all the attention on the spending side of the equation. But, you know, it's an equation. So what's on the other side? The other side is tax revenues. And one of the reasons I would say the biggest, re biggest reason that we've had um, a deficit and a debt problem for the last 30 years is that Republicans have basically taken a political decision to um, de undermine the tax base at any opportunity they can. I mean, you know, you could say it's a one-off, but it's not a one-off because we've been through it every time they, they've been in power now for the, for the last, uh, you know, 25 years. So they basically, and also even when they're in power, they, you know, they, even though they talk a good game about reducing spending, they don't actually do it much because most spending programs, as we all know, are, are very popular. And we'll get onto that. That's going to become an issue this year. So, yeah, you've got to look at tax and spending when you're looking at the deficit. To just focus on spending is completely misleading. The and U.S. Gonna... is a huge economy. And, you know, it's got a we re, our tax burden, even though it's gone up, is still considerably smaller than most countries in Europe and most other advanced countries. U.S. has always had a relatively small federal government. Now, it also has a large local government, so you've got to have that to it, states and cities, etc. But even if you do that, the the uh, taxes and um, spending as a percentage of GDP are still smaller in the United States than they are in most other big European governments like the U.K., Germany, or France. PJ in Manhattan. You're on WNYC with John Cassidy. Hi, PJ. Uh, good morning, Brian. Uh, Mr. Cassidy, I have a question for you on why um, people invest in uh, Treasury bonds. I mean, too recently, the uh, return are zero percent. The only the only uh, people that are profiting are bankers because, like uh, Goldman Sachs, for example, they borrow, they became a bank, and suddenly they can borrow at zero percent from the Fed. And I mean, then lend it at five percent, but the average investor have virtually have uh, no return on investment on on treasury bonds. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and it's not exactly true anymore. With rising interest rates, you can get a few percent on treasury bonds. There's also a category called John. Do you know what is it? H bonds. I'm not sure if it's H, where you can invest up to ten thousand dollars and get. Almost 10% interest 
but don't yeah, tell no, anybody. No, no, no. Don't tell anybody because everybody will do it. Um, everybody should do it if you've got ten thousand dollars. Oh, I bonds, right? I bonds, inflation bonds. They are. They're, they're a they're a form of treasury bond, but the the return is linked to inflation, as the caller said. Till very recently, the uh, yields on treasury bonds have been very low, um, but these are linked to inflation. So for last year, I think they were paying nine percent, as you said. So there's a limit of fifteen thousand. They're intended for individual investors. Uh, and individual savers. If you've got 15k kicking around, uh, you should definitely, you know, do that. In terms of why people buy treasuries, <laughs> as you, as, there is a great an element of mystery there. In the for large investors, they always like to have some element of their portfolio in what they consider safe and liquid securities. So in case there's a crisis. They, uh, they, you know, they won't lose a lot of value, and if they ever need to cash in quickly, they can be guaranteed of getting the, getting a good price. Treasuries fulfill that function for a large part of the world, it turns out, and that's where most of the, the demand for treasury bond comes. But yes, if you're an individual investor and you uh, don't think the world's going to end in the next couple of years or if it's going to be a huge financial crisis, um, until recently, treasury bonds have uh, you know, been a, um, a, a zero-yielding return or close to zero. Yes, and one of my colleagues who uh, is probably pretty invested in I-bonds because seems to know uh, all of this off the top of their heads, it was 9 point something percent in the most of last year. Now it's down to 6.3% interest on those Treasury I-bonds. That's still really good compared to other safe investments, but I guess because inflation has come down a bit, um, that payout has come down a bit and you can invest up to it's it's I thought it was 10 you said $15,000 so it's somewhere in there so last question um president biden says no negotiations on the debt ceiling this is the politics from his side is that what democratic presidents usually say given how long you've covered this or are negotiations around the debt ceiling normal and that's what we can expect over the next few months well Ultimately, unless one party is, you know, controls Congress, there has to be some sort of negotiation because you need the votes of the other party to pass the legislation to raise the debt limit. Um, in 2021, the last time this was done, the Democrats, you know, control both houses so they're able to get it through. Now, it's still a bit sketchy because you, unless you do it through reconciliation, which is a very long process, you need 60 votes in the Senate, so they had to get approval from McConnell, which they did at that stage. Um, but they could have, they had the thread in reserve that they could have done it through reconciliation if the Republicans didn't go along. So if you're in that stage, in that thing, it, it goes through relatively easily. And the Republicans were in charge, they didn't, you know, they always raise the debt limit and, uh, you know, don't bring it up until the Democrats come back the next time. Now, the big historical example. Uh, which everybody's talking about now, is 2011 and 2013 when they were negotiating. The Obama administration, you remember, after the Tea Party victories in the 2010 midterms, the Tea Party was making noises very similar to what the Free Freedom Caucus is making now. Spending's out of control. We have to do something. Can't, can't raise the debt limit. The Obama administration coming out of the Great Recession was very wor understandably worried about the economy. They thought this could be a, a disaster if, you know, it gets out of control, we have financial, another financial crash, etc. So they agreed to negotiate. And, uh, you know, from a lot of Democrats think it didn't go very well from a Democratic point of view because they had to end up agreeing 
a sequester, the sequester policy, which, if you remember, was the sort of dr draconian threat to slash spending across the government if uh, there weren't other spending cuts agreed. So mm. spending was restrained from like 2011, 2016. And there are a lot, if you talk to Democrats in Washington on the political side, a lot of them think that, you know, that helped to, um, that really damaged democratic political prospects because it held the economy back during those years. Mm. And some of them even think, you know, it may have been uh, partly responsible for Trump's rise because one of Trump's big arguments, if you remember, was that the economy was going growing very slowly under under Obama. Right. Really good historical context, John. And I guess saying no negotiations is often your first negotiating position. So maybe that's what we heard from Biden the other day. John Cassidy, New Yorker Magazine staff writer since 1995, who is also the author of the books, How Markets Fail, The Logic of Economic Calamities, and Dot Con, How America Lost Its Mind and Money in the Internet Era. Thanks for making us a lot smarter on the debt ceiling. Now we can all go to a lot of cocktail parties and hangouts and say to our friends, hey, you want to know about the debt ceiling? And then they'll, um, they'll throw us out. John, thank you very much. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.